Is it relatively easy for us to wipe ourselves out as a collective world? Yes, and we are in the process of doing it. average CEO reads 60 books per year, and many attribute their success to this habit of constant learning. This is the difference between those who actualize and those who fail. This automization of their learning, this 1% better every day. On the MentorBox podcast, we're making it easy for you to build and maintain that same habit, the same type of constant lifelong learning as those CEOs, simply by listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and tune in for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and every Friday. And if you want to dig deeper into what our incredible guests teach, make sure to go to mentorbox.com and become a member today. Okay, welcome. Today I have a very special guest for you on the MentorBox uh, Book of the Day show. Over 3 million copies sold, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Professor Jared Diamond, Pulitzer Prize winner, professor here at UCLA down the street, historian, geographer, and overall interesting person. Bill Gates actually said, I I thought this was a good, I feel like Bill Gates doesn't find many people interesting, but he wrote fascinating on this book. So thanks for being here. A pleasure. I appreciate it. So I wanted to just talk to you. I was looking through, I've read this book. And your other books collapse and, and things. And one of, I wrote down a quote here, and I just thought I'd start by this. You said, history followed different courses for different people because of differences among people's environments, not because of biological differences among people themselves. So you're a preeminent authority. Do you, this is kind of that old nature versus nurture. Are you more on the, nurture environmental side versus the genetic because you go on to say europe's colonization of africa had not nothing to do with differences between european and african people themselves as racists assume rather was due to accidents of geography and biogeography in particular to the continent's different areas axis and suites of wild plant and animal species so i know it's a big question but what is your take on nature versus nature as it pertains to humans in history? Nature versus nurture, both are important, and it depends upon what you're looking at. If you want to know why some people are resistant to malaria and other people, why Swedes have no natural resistance to malaria and why most West Africans do have resistance to malaria. That depends upon the sickle cell gene and thalassemia genes. It's the result of thousands of years of exposure to malaria in West Africans, but not in Swedes. Those are differences that depend upon nature that 
not on nurture. No amount of nurture that your parents give you will give you the sickle cell gene. There's one example. On the other hand, as why it is that Europeans develop metal tools and New Guineans do not develop metal tools, is it because Europeans have better brains than New Guineans? No, I've spent lots of time over the last 54 years with New Guineans, and they're as curious, they're quick learning, they're at least on the average as intelligent as Europeans. The reasons why they did not develop metal tools is that New Guinea had rather few plants suitable for domestication, Those few, and they did not have any animals suitable for domestication. But domesticated plants and animals are the prerequisite for agriculture, which is the prerequisite for developing metal tools and riding in cities and, and states. There's an example of the difference being entirely due to nature. Long-winded way of saying some things depend upon nurture and some things depend upon nature. And if you want a simple answer to any question, never ask Jared Diamond. <laughs> That's good. Well, uh, what is it, Dunning-Kruger effect? Dumb people think they have easy answers and smart people realize it's complicated. Well, let me bring this around here to a little more current events. The United States somewhat is divided group that you'd say more nationalistic, more about America first, American borders, and another one that's a little more open borders. Not to pivot too much, but if that's true, that there's talented people everywhere, that it doesn't matter so much about genetic, well, it does matter, but in terms of societal groups, it doesn't matter, meaning there's smart people in just as many smart people in Mexico or in in, in, uh, Central America are you more of a fan of saying, let's make America a place where anyone can come to? Are we allowed to talk on this? We are allowed to talk okay. on it. And it's obviously a difficult practical question. The cruel reality is that some parts of the world are better to make a living easier to make a living than other parts of the world. In general, the temperate zones have higher agricultural productivity because temperate zones have deeper, richer soils than the tropics. And in general, the temperate zones have fewer chronic diseases than the tropics. The tropics have diseases like malaria and sleeping sickness and chagas. So the cruel reality is that the temperate zones have more of the conditions for wealth than do the tropics. What are we going to do about that? Uh, Does it mean that everybody who's living in the tropics today, all four billion of them, are going to be invited to move into Europe and North America and Japan? Well, Europe and North America and Japan cannot provide the living space and the nutrition for four billion people. What do we do about it? All that we can do is provide intelligent foreign aid and help to tropical countries to help tropical countries become rich. And there are tropical countries that have become rich. Prime examples are Singapore. Singapore, we've talked about, Malaysia on the way, Botswana on the way. Costa Rica is a really interesting example. Costa Rica is a tropical country. Costa Rica used to be the poorest country in Central America. Costa Rica is now the richest country in Central America. Well, it's not because the tropics are more benign in Costa Rica, not at all the case. It's that the Costa Rican people made good decisions. In 1948, the Costa Ricans decided to abolish their army 
because the army was just causing coup d'etats, and the Costa Rican people have um, investigated, have invested in maintaining their environment and in tourism. So the Costa Rican people have made good decisions. Another interesting example is Cuba. So Cuba, in many circles in the United States, it is not considered nice to to refer to Cuba as... Unless you're a Bernie Sanders fan. The, he seems like he's a Cuba guy. But there, there, there are many, many Americans who would not want to look to Cuba right. as an admirable example. But the cruel reality is that Cuba, although the average income in Cuba is only one-sixth that of the United States, Cubans have a lifespan equal to Americans huh. and child mortality and perinatal mother mortality in Cuba is lower than in the United States and security in old age and educational opportunities in Cuba rival those in the United States. Why? Because the Cuban government, in addition to various bad things, um, has invested massively in education and in health, more than has the American government. Those are just examples that countries that have environmental disadvantages, such as Costa Rica and Cuba, through governmental decisions can nevertheless either get ahead, as in the case of Costa Rica, or do the best they can under the conditions like Cuba. Fascinating. All right, let's pivot to a, another one of your books. You have a book that I love on the collapse. Collapse is the title, and for those of you who haven't read it, it is kind of recounting various civilizations that collapsed. One of them that I remember was Easter Island, and I've actually been to Chile. I didn't quite make it out to Easter Island, but not too far. There's two schools of thoughts. I mean, there's multiple, but two big schools of thoughts in the United States when it comes to environmental, global warming, degradation. Um, There's one that says, look, it is happening, but humans don't have so much to do with it. Then there's a large group, a lot of scientists that say, no, you know, industrial age, carbon released, whether it be through agricultural practices, plowing everything up. I, I have an agricultural background. Plowing everything up, there's more corn planted now than basically any time in history. Fossil fuel. I'm going to just ask you a simple question, then we can go into complicated. Do you think it's relatively easy for us to wipe ourselves out as a collective world right now? Is it relatively easy for us to wipe ourselves out as a collective world? Yes, and we are in the process of doing it. Okay. Um, At the rate that things are going now... The world is operating non-sustainably. We are exploiting forests and fish more rapidly than forests and fish reproduce themselves. We are exploiting the readily available sources of fossil fuels and of iron. That means that we are operating non-sustainably. How long do we have? If if you see someone who's got a bank account of $1,000 and they are overspending themselves by $100 each year, you know that in 10 10 years their bank account will be empty. You can do a similar calculation for the world. At the rate we are going now, it'll be 30, 40 years before the world has run out of essential resources. So at the rate we're going on now, yes, we're in the process of heading towards collapse. But does that mean that we should give up and all commit suicide? No, because... What's at risk of destroying us is our own decisions. We can change our decisions. Some of those decisions we've changed 
within my lifetime, some attitudes we've changed in the last four or five years. So I would say it's, it's our choice. If, assuming this, that we can change it, which is kind of your position, if you were king for a day, emperor for a day, emperor diamond, if you could make one decision, that would be, you think, a domino to push things. Would it be focus on agriculture, solar power, putting man on the mo- uh, on Mars like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are interested in doing? I heard an interesting thing, Jeff Bezos, and never thought of it this way. He said, if we survive, eventually, just simple math, there'll be trillions of humans if we survive. And therefore, we have to go to Mars. I never thought of that. I mean, I had, but I, <laughs> not in that quite way. But do you like the space route? Do you like the solar panel route? Do you like the stop eating meat route? And and we, what, what's your preferred? Knowing that there is no one right answer, but just a hypothetical best start. You're going to dislike my answer, and, okay. and when you get rid of me, no. Nope. Oh, I kick nope. Ty off the planet. I'm the, I would dislike that one. When you ask what is the one most important thing to do, my answer is the one most important thing to do is not to try to find the one most important thing to do okay. because we have to get right about 37 different things. Okay. It would be like if you were to ask me what is the one most important thing for conducting a happy marriage, right. I would say I know right away that you're not going to conduct a happy marriage right. because you think that there's one secret. But to conduct a happy marriage, you've got to agree about children and religion and politics and sex and money and friends and in-law. you got to get everything right. Yeah. If you get 36 things right but you disagree about money, it's right. divorce. If you get 36 things right but you fight about sex, it's divorce. And similarly for operating the world, we got to get 36 things. we got to get water right. If we don't get water, we're finished. we got to get energy right. If we don't get energy right, we're finished. we got to get human population right. If we don't get that right, we're finished. And so my answer to your question is stop looking for the one most important thing, but realize you've got to get lots of things right. Who's doing it right? Is there? I've lived in Scandinavia. I've been to 40, 50 countries. Is there a country or a region that you say, let's kind of follow their lead? There are lots of countries that are getting some things right. The United States is getting some things right. Bhutan, a rather poor country, Bhutan is nevertheless getting it right because the announced goal of the government of Bhutan is not to maximize economic growth, but to maximize gross national happiness. That's a very sensible goal. The governments of Scandinavia and the Netherlands are getting it right because they are into relative equality among people. There are not the big differences between rich people and poor people, which is a recipe for trouble. The United States, the United States is getting some things right. Our educational system, although it is different for different people, the fact is that American higher education is the most advanced, most successful higher education um, in the world. American agriculture is the most productive agriculture in the world, rivaled only by Dutch agriculture. Mm -hmm. So there are many countries that are getting some things right. There's no country that's getting everything right. Yeah. Interesting. So let's keep pivoting. You've written so many books, we got to pivot all around here. Let's talk about, but this is one near and dear to my heart, when you talk about the traditional societies, which has been a big thing that you've studied or a big area of focus. I lived with the Amish for two and a half years. I was, wasn't born Amish. I was born in Los Angeles, but 
found myself there in my early 20s, and I still own a farm that's run in the middle of an Amish community run. In fact, one of my farms, next Tuesday, there's a barn raising the Amish are coming to build for me. So I speak their language. I've been, people ask me why I did it. I said, I wanted a time machine, and this was the best I could do. I went back to what it was like, at least in pre-industrial Germany, let's say. I'm half term. So one thing that stuck out to me in, I believe it was that book, it may have been one of your others, is that the Amish have 500% lower anxiety, depression. I forget the exact verbiage, but what are traditional, because anxiety is a massive, I just read an article that for teenagers, drug abuse has now been surpassed by anxiety as the biggest problem that young people face. What is it about modern society? Because I hear all kinds of theories. It's social media that's making everybody become more narcissistic or more depressed, and we see other people. Is that true? Is it urbanization? One of my grandma, who's now 101, was born. 90% of people lived in the rural, in a rural or small town setting. Now, 90% live in large urban cities. Is that, how would you diagnose what's, what's wrong with anxiety that we can learn from traditional society? Is it that they have extended family and they all live together? What is this thing that makes traditional societies, at least some of them, happier? A couple of things contribute. One is strong social connections that last your life. My experience is with traditional New Guinea societies, but I think you'll find that they're similar to Amherst societies in these basic respects. In New Guinea societies, you spend your life in the village by and large. You, you, you spend your life in the village where you were born. It means that you've got these lifelong connections. I think in Amherst society, too, you spend your life there. So you have you, these lifelong friendships. I was born in Boston. Here I am living in Los Angeles. There is not a single person other than my sister in Los Angeles whom I knew before the age of 10. Mm-hmm. And that means that a standard problem for we Americans who move around so much is shallow friendships, brief friendships, friendships that get turned over every time that we move. The average American moves every five years. So Americans are lonely. We have low social support. We have low social ties. But social ties provide richness and a center to life. That's one thing. That's one advantage of New Guineans and and of the Amish, the strong social ties. Another thing has to do with direct communication in New Guinea and among the Amish. Certainly in New Guinea, until recently, there were no cell phones. Mm -hmm. There was no internet. When New Guineans talk with each other, it's like you and me now. It's it's face-to-face. We're not looking down into our laps. It's not that when I'm talking with you, I'm also texting. You have my full attention. I'm looking you in the eye, and I'm reading your body language. I'm listening to you. I'm sensing where you are. You are sensing where I am. Among modern Americans, among modern first world people, within the last decade or two decades, most communication, is it's not face-to-face. It's indirect. Most of our communication is by digital media. Right. We don't learn to read other people because we're not looking in the face. We don't hear their voices. We don't smell them. We don't see, see them move. Other people are things on a screen. Mm. But if you've got things on a screen, 
it's it's easy. It's acceptable to insult words on a screen. Yeah. But it's not acceptable for me to look you in the eye and insult you. The breakdown of face-to-face communication among modern Americans compared to Amish and New Guineans is, I think, a major reason, along with these lifelong social ties, for the greater security and the greater self-confidence on the average and the greater social sophistication of New Guineans compared to modern Americans, and I would guess of Amish compared to modern Americans. So if I'm hearing you right, the good news is that those are within the realm of possibility for people to adjust in life. You could simply find old friends on Facebook could be good and say, we haven't connected since we were eight years old. We should hang out more. I'll tell you what an Amish guy, his name was William Yutzi. And when I was young, I met him and he was an older guy and I lived with him. And then he, he, I left Amish, went back to my normal city life. And 10 years later, I went up to his farm. He had moved to Wisconsin. He had 10 kids. And I walked in his house and he said to me in German, but the translation, he said, I'm glad to see you, Ty, because new friends are good, but old friends are better. Yeah. And I thought, that's very true. There's something about that. Pre, is that do you think that's the number pre-10-year-old friends that you had in early childhood is more important than even teenage ones? Absolutely. In, in general, friends that you've known longer they're unique. They can't be replaced because I moved from Boston where I grew up and and I don't have in Los Angeles friends that I knew before the age of 20. My closest friends, they live in Germany. They live in London. They live in New York. And nowadays I try once a year to go to London, to go to New York, to go to Germany, to see my closest friends. What's unique about my closest friends? I knew them when when I was 12 years old. I knew, knew them when I was seven years old. Um, I know their brothers and sisters. I knew their parents. Um, I understand them and they understand me. Mm-hmm. Whereas people that I met at the age of 50, it may sound embarrassing, but they tell me their life stories and then I see them a year later. And I've forgotten their life stories, and I asked them some embarrassing questions. So do you have any brothers and sisters? <laughs> and here they poured out their heart to me right. about their brothers and sisters. So, yeah, old, old friends are irreplaceable. Yeah. Well, I like to ask this question as, a, as I wrap up here. So we kind of wreck home. Not quite wrapped up, but. And by the way, I'm just going to mention Professor Diamond just recorded. For those of you who are in MentorBox or don't know about MentorBox, Put a link below or here in the corners. Go to MentorBox in under 10 minutes a day or seven minutes, depending on the day. We have the authors teach their book. So you can increase the amount of books you're taking in every month. Then you can go out and buy the ones that really appeal to you. But MentorBox, we have hundreds of authors teaching you um, and it costs less than Netflix, less than less than Hulu. So click the link below and... Uh, you just recorded some fascinating, we go kind of, these interviews that I do here are a little more talking about everything, but we go step by step through books, Pulitzer Prize winning books, and yeah, people, it's hard to read enough in the modern world, so we're trying to get the authors to teach you the highlights of their books, and then you can go on on your own pace and read the whole book, so click the link below, but 
As we wrap up here, here's my question for you. You go back. You're very, you're very young looking for your age. Am I allowed to say your age here? Yeah. Okay. You're over 80 years old, still teaching at UCLA. You've, of course, learned, you've been around the world with an eye to studying and learning. If you could go back and set the, the time to your 18 years old again, but you know everything you know now, what's some of the things, big things you would do different? Yeah. It's a tough question. Or maybe I could say, if we write a letter right now to your 18-year-old self, maybe just a few sentences, and you could grab, there's an episode of The Office where they fax, they convince Dwight Schrute that he's getting faxes from the future, telling him what to do. So if you send a fax back to your 18-year-old self, what does a couple sentences say? I would answer that positively rather than than negatively instead of focusing on the things that I regret. Naturally, there are things that I regret in my behavior with other people, um, and they're painful, and there's nothing I can do to change that. Um, I'd rather focus on the things that I did did right. Uh Um, One thing, thing perhaps especially— when I was in high school, I read Thoreau's Walden. Yeah. And then when I was in graduate school, I read, reread Th- Thoreau's Walden. That book shook me up more than any other book that I've read in my life because huh. the, the message of Walden, and my guess is this, this may also apply, the message of Walden is figure out what's important to you and do it and never mind what the rest of the world thinks. Huh. Never mind if the rest of the world says go get a job and do this and follow a normal course. And so I've done things throughout my life that, that the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world will not do. I spent lots of time in New Guinea. I spent lots of time playing music. I've followed my own interests. I do not spend time on things that could make me money in order to, to make money. I'd rather do things that I enjoy I'd rather spend no time figuring out how to manage investments and have more time doing things that I really enjoy just as long as I have enough money to feed myself and my wife and my children. So when you ask, what do I regret? I'd instead say, let's think about what I did right. And I say, what I did right was I absorbed Thoreau and I've done what I considered important, even though lots of people think Jared Diamond is crazy. (laughs) Like Einstein says, the thing about smart people is they seem crazy to dumb people. Maybe that that has a little to do with it. So one more question along here. So that's interesting. So in many ways, a book was a catalyst for much of your, which is, we didn't even plan that with MentorBox. We're all about books and the importance of books. The other question I, I would ask you is, so that's what you did right, the cause, an effect. What do you say to somebody who's watching who is in the worst time of their life? Because certainly there's been a point in your life where you're at lows. What do you do? You, I mean, you're a very wise person. You've studied multiple cultures from all angles, including not even our own decade or our own century. What do you do when everything seems to be against you? Do you just wait it out? Do you take action? Do you withdraw and, and figure out what you did wrong? Do you, do you write a book? Or, I mean, obviously there's many things to do, but 
What's your short one or two sentences that you say to people who are find themselves in that place in life? That's a very current question because the book that I'm will publish two months from now okay. is on crises, and oh. it's about national crises viewed from the perspective of personal crises. But my wife Marie is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in personal crises. Oh. So yes, I think a and lot. This wasn't of, even planned. It's serendipitous. It is serendipity. Yeah. So yes, I I think a lot about what to do if you think you're at the bottom. And there have been times when I thought that I was at the bottom. Um, There are two or three things to do first. The first thing to do is to acknowledge that you're at the bottom and not kid yourself. The second thing to do is to accept personal responsibility, not blame it on other people, not say I'm helpless, I'm a victim, but to recognize that there are things that you could do Maybe you got into this situation because of mistakes that you made, or maybe you got into this situation because you fell in with bad people, but it's going to change only if you do something yourself, so it's your personal responsibility. And then then the third thing is to recognize, um, to be honest with yourself, and to recognize that some things about you may need changing, but other things don't need changing, even at the absolute bottom. It's not the case that everything about you is screwed up and needs to be changed. Huh. For everybody, there are, some, there are some things, many things that you got right. The challenge is to identify the particular thing or things that you got wrong and the need to be worked on. So maybe one of the things, if I hear you, is we oftentimes throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're doing a lot of things right, and when things go bad, we freak. We overly blame ourselves. We blame uh, everything's wrong with us when maybe... Only a few things. I, I remember a therapist, I, I forget who I interviewed, but they said the fine line between function and dysfunctional people is usually how specific they are. A dysfunctional marriage, the husband yells at the wife and says, everything you do bothers me, when really it's just a little thing. And maybe dysfunctional treatment of ourself is to go, you're a failure, as opposed to, no, last month you just bit off a little more than you should chew. Don't do that again. Does that sound... Remotely within the realm? Yes. I would use the word selective change. Mm. If you are at the, at the bottom, realize that there are some things you need to change. Be honest with yourself. Figure out what are those things that need changing, what is not working, and work on changing them. But don't get overwhelmed and think everything in my life is messed up because for nobody is everything in their life messed yeah. up. Maintain the things about yourself that are working well yeah. and take responsibility for the things in your life that need changing. Recognize that you're not, you may not succeed in changing them overnight. It may take repeated experiments. For example, if someone is making a mess of their marriage, you may not be able the next day to change your bad habits. You may have to experiment with different ways, but keep experimenting until you find something that works. So in short, first of all, acknowledge that you're at the bottom. Secondly, accept responsibility that only you can change it. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, recognize that the change that you need is selective. Some things about you are okay. Yeah. You got to identify the things that are not okay and work on changing them. Well, I really appreciate you being here. Everybody watching, if you're listening, go to mentorbox.com slash podcast. You can hear specific books explained by the authors, including Professor Diamond, who just recorded. 
Those of you watching, click the link below. And thank you so much for being here. That was fascinating. It's a pleasure. It, it was a while in the works to get. This is a very in-demand person, but I appreciate you taking the time. Great. Thank you, and thank you for providing such a really interesting discussion. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast. Podcast.